Hello and welcome to All of the Above. I'm James Brown. Thanks for joining me. Check out my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com and just about everywhere online at James Brown TV. Help me grow the program by liking, sharing, and subscribing. And by the way, tell a friend, it really does help. Hey, members, get bonus content and more to come. This is part two of my sit-down with Jeff Tyzik, a Grammy-winning composer and conductor. We'll link to part one in the description of this episode. But today, Jeff and I will discuss defining classical music, the limits of composing popular music for orchestras, and more. Here's my conversation with Jeff Tyzik. There are lots of conventions about orchestral music. There's a box that I think most of us put it in. Some would just call it classical. Is that the correct term? Do you like the term? No. How do you feel about it? Well, there's just music is so diverse. I mean, there, and there are so many eras of music. I mean, when people think of classical music, they, they kind of go back to the period of time of, you know, Haydn and Mozart, Beethoven, Schubert, and, you know, Tchaikovsky, you know, the, the Eastern European music that, you know, came to America through the immigrants that brought it and, and, and that kind of thing. So that, that's when they think of classical music. But, you know, Bernstein's classical, but, you know, there's also Bernstein wrote West Side Story. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? And uh, there are, you know, so many, like, Latin composers uh, that got short shrift, you know, like Manuel de Falla and, and, and even Revueltas and Marquez, these contemporary composers. And there's a whole... You know, and music, a uh, new music, and kind of if you think about also George Gershwin, I mean, George Gershwin's incredible music. He wrote shows, he wrote the first American opera, Porgy and Bess, basically, you know, Rhapsody in Blue, and American in Paris, and the Concerto in F are two phenomenal classical pieces, but they contain within them elements of jazz and blues and, and different things like that, you know. And I must say that, you know, black composers that write classical music were, have been overlooked over the years. And now there's there's a resurgence in that. And I just did a concert. And it was really interesting for me because I picked five pieces of music. And I come to find out later, every one of them had a relationship to Rochester that I didn't know about. Hmm. Uh, this composer, Adolphus Hailstork, we did this fanfare of, of his. Uh, and he was born in Rochester. Then we did a piece by uh, the composer Okoye, and it's from an opera about Harriet Tubman. And Harriet Tubman didn't live far from Rochester, and, the, and the, you know, the Underground Railroad went right through Rochester, okay? And then we did a piece by William Grant Still, who uh, actually became a protege of Howard Hansen. Howard Hansen is a great American composer who was also the dean of the Eastman School of Music, and he wrote this Afro-American symphony. And it was programmed in 1934 with the Rochester Philharmonic premiering that piece in the Eastman Theater in 1934. Incredible. Second half, a new young composer, James Lee. Well, he's, compared to me, he's young. He's in his 40s. Incredible composer. And he wrote Freedom's Genuine Dawn. And this was a piece for narrator and orchestra. And it's 
a Frederick Douglass speech. One of his, his speech was, you know, the speech about the 4th of July. What does that mean to us, you know? And he set it to music. It was an incredible piece of music. Very, I mean, it was only written in the last three years. Very, and so that comes under the umbrella of classical music, you know? And our final piece was Duke Ellington wrote a ballet called The River. And it is really a brilliant piece of music, and it's written for orchestra. So there's a whole genre of music that is actually classical music, but it is anything but the music of the 18 and 1900s, if you know what I mean. So there's that box, you know, there's classical, then there's popular. I mean, the orchestras, they sell these boxes, you know, subscribe to our classical series, subscribe to our pop series. But sometimes in the pop series, I'm doing what's known as classical music. And sometimes on the classical series, we're doing Duke Ellington jazz. So to me, there are no boxes. Precisely. And, and I think at doing a, uh, an examination of your career and your background and the type of music you've made and who you've worked with, it, it's clear that you like to break that box, you know, that, that you, you kind of want to throw it up against the wall. Um, you know, sure. yeah. Um, there's sort of, there's a lot of preconceptions, uh, that, that, uh, that orchestral music or, or classical music, that it's a white genre, that it is sort of, uh, um, that it's an upper crust, um, genre. And, and I, in your, after, in your careers, your choices, it seems like you're like, Hey, why can't I like work with like Leslie Olin Jr.? Or, or 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 Winona Judd, you know, like just like that that um that there's more. How common is that perspective, and why do you make that choice? Because I made it from the beginning. I I don't. I am like we're all humans. You go back four point one billion years. We're we're all from the same matter. You go back five million years. We're all we're all from the same genome that started. You know what I'm saying? So I. I don't like labels and boxes. I think it's exclusatory. I don't, if that's a word, I hope it is. I, I made it up. You know? It is but now. I, yeah. <laughs> I, I don't, I don't like, you know, these, these fences and boxes and rules. And, you know, normally in a classical concert, the only time you applaud is at the end of the whole piece. Right. So in this concert, I was telling you about the, the, uh, the, the, the concert with the black composer music, um, there were, let's see, if you break up all of the pieces into movements, there were one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15. There were 17 different elements, right? The audience applauded after every single one that night. Hmm. Everything, we broke the barriers down. It's like, you, you feel you want you love this music you want to applaud bring it on you want to be engaged in this concert bring it on you know so i i don't i don't like the boxes i just want people to come in and experience something in an honest emotional way and react to it the same way and not like oh it's the etiquette is you can only do this and you can only do that you know i mean there are times when there are amazing ethereal moments happening where you prefer somebody doesn't yell out <laughs> to break the spell, you know? 
uh, which is funny because I, I read this thing on the internet. There was a concert in Los Angeles recently, and I forget what piece they were playing, some Ravel or something. And at this moment in the piece, this woman sighed so loud in the room. It was it was kind of like, I mean, it was an amazing thing to hear this sound of the human at this one moment in the room. And like the whole audience, <laughs> you know. <laughs> but yeah, I, I don't, you know, I don't, even though I went to a conservatory, I don't really come from the restrictive, uh, you know, sort of background of classical musicians who are, are taught a certain way and, and certain this etiquette is expected. I mean, I, you know, of course we want to have respect and not interfering with concerts in a stupid way. But I mean, if the audience wants to give you back something, applause or energy, um, you know, I, I love it. I love it. I think it just, it makes it more meaningful for, for the, everybody who comes. And, and I want people to come and just be comfortable, enjoy themselves, get something out of the concert, be touched. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, and I think the musicians love it too. You know, I noticed the RPO the night of that concert. Actually, we did two different nights. Audience after every tune was applauding. I mean, they were, they were like, wow, this is so cool. You know, this is really great. Um, so that's, you know, we have to touch people. Is your perspective unique to you? Um, I think it has been fairly unique, uh, but I think it's starting to change. And I think people are starting, you know, other, other musicians and conductors are, are starting to realize uh, it's not going to serve us well if we are a museum piece. Like, you know, we're, let's say, I mean, you can almost say the way it has been sometimes is the orchestra is a painting that emits sound. So we're going to go and observe this painting and hear this sound. I don't want it to be like that. I want it to be like, we're in this together. <laughs> we need you. Um, we want, we don't want to be separated from you by some, you know, imaginary wall. We don't want you to observe us. We want you to take part in, in this program in some way. Uh, so I encourage the involvement. You know, we don't want you to, to, to have these rules and feel uncomfortable about being in the room. We want you to come in and just observe, enjoy, uh, take participate in this incredible experience. So, and I think, you know, there are, are more examples of conductors who uh, are doing interesting things and maybe talking, oh my God, you mean I'm going to talk to somebody between the between pieces? Wow. Why is that so crazy? That's a great thing. Tell me something about the music that is very interesting, you know? Um, and I think some, some up, you know, new iconic conductors like Dudamel and some other people are, are really breaking down the barriers because they, they understand. They understand. You know, I understood it right from the beginning. And it's actually why I wanted to get into this music uh, with orchestras was to break that stuff down to make the orchestra as relevant as I could, exciting and interesting. I mean, I love writing and hearing my music played by orchestras. That's a personal thrill. But I also think the vehicle was in trouble. And I wanted to break down the kinds of impediments that kept it 
from being accessible to people. And that's been my whole career. And, you know, I feel good about what I've definitely what I've done in Rochester and the other orchestras where I have a position because I've been able to do that there and set an example that, you know, maybe some people are going to follow, you know, I don't know. We'll see. History will tell that. I don't know. Tell me more about the trouble. What was happening that inspired you? Well, I, I actually, I, I came to, uh, early on in Rochester, I came to some Pops concerts. And I, I just thought they were really dumb. And I, I, I left it in intermission most of the time. I just didn't like, I, I didn't, it was kind of, they were, they were sort of corny. If you, if that's a word, you know, um, and I didn't, I thought they could be so much more. And so the, the way I got my job was I basically, you know, went into the office and said, look, uh, I think these concerts could be a lot better. I think I could do a good job. And they decided to give me a shot. And, and I proved what I said. I proved that they could be, and that there was a way to engage the audience and to make the music, to make popular music on the pop series have as much meaning for that crowd as the classical masterworks have on that series for that crowd. You know what I'm saying? Let's elevate the pops to its highest possible level. And that might be something as simple as playing a Ray Charles song, you know, that's really, really good. So we don't have to do any, we don't have to go out and, and try to find a Beethoven that works on, in, on the pop side. I mean, there's so much great music out there there's, of, of all kinds, uh, Latin music, you know, Motown, R&B, soul, blues, Broadway. I mean, there's so much great music out there. Let's just make it compelling and make it really worth something. So that's the goal. Let's make this as compelling and at the highest level possible. And that's, was my motivation to do that um, because I realized there are a lot of people in the world who would like to hear a symphony orchestra, but they don't want to hear Bach and Mozart and Beethoven. They don't want to hear that music. That's not for them, but they still want to hear the sound of a symphony orchestra. Let's get them in the room then. Let's give them something that makes them feel good. It could be film music. It could be Casablanca. It could be music from Jaws by John Williams. You know, it, it could be, uh, you know, Broadway, it could be Rent, it could be all different kinds of that. It could be Latin music, it could be Brazilian music, you know, it can be jazz, it can be blues, it could be R&B, it could be Motown, it could be even rap music, you know, some of that makes its way to the stage. So if it has intrinsic value, let's put that on stage two for all those people. That's kind of was my mission, and I think I've been pretty uh, successful at doing that. And I'm um, actually... If I could say, uh, I'm proud of it. I'm proud that I was able to take it this far and accomplish what were my early goals uh, to bring more and more people into the hall to hear a great symphony orchestra. I mean, it's that simple. I just took your description, and correct me if, I, if I'm off base, that you see your, your work as sort of a tools to create an experience. Mm -hmm. Sure. Absolutely. And those tools can be used to, it can take just about any form. Are there forms that have been difficult to work with, more difficult than others? Um, well, newer pop music 
uh, is a little difficult to work with because it's often it just boils down to a simple rhythmic pattern with a, a few effects going and and the people you know who are kind of rapping over the top of it um, there there are just these little tiny elements that come in here and there it's more about sort of what is the message the social message of what's coming through the the you know the lyrics and and whatever and that music doesn't really work well for orchestra. It just doesn't because the, the instrumentation doesn't really support it. So, and, and there's certain other pop music that it's very difficult. Uh, after you get past yeah, mid 2000s, it's kind of difficult to find stuff that works well for an orchestra, you know. But, you know, if you go back, I mean, obviously anything from and we're talking popular music now. When I say popular, I'm going back to the 19, early 1900s with blues and ragtime, you know, all the way through the 30s swing and the 40s swing and then the 50s, you know, all the soul music in the 50s and the 60s and the 70s and the 80s. and the 90s. There, there's, it's, All those decades are rich with music uh, that work well for symphony orchestra. Now we're getting into a, uh, an area where there, there's less music that will work and be compelling with orchestra it's compelling with the groups who do it and it's compelling with the bands that do it but there's not enough there to give it to have the orchestra make it interesting if if, if that makes any sense so I, i'm a little i don't know that we may have reached the pinnacle in terms of time periods of the kind of music that will work with a symphony orchestra and maybe that'll make a change because it always does you know and it's interesting, you know, Seal did an album of ballads, you know, uh, and, and so did, um, oh, I'm blanking on, on this, this other guy, but Queen Latifah, she did an album of ballads. <laughs> it was really incredible, you know. Uh, just one other uh, singer, I can't think of who did it. You know, and Sting, actually, Sting does orchestra concerts. You know, his music really works well with orchestra. Um, so uh, it'll be interesting to see if we've, uh, we're going to have emerging artists that go maybe a little counter to some of the pop music that's happening and, and the music gets a little more lyrical, melodic, and and has more of a form that is interesting than sort of what's happening in some of the music. And, I, and I'm not saying what's happening in the music of today is not valid, but it's valid in other ways than the complexity of the actual musical part, if you know what I'm saying. Oh, I do. Yeah, so so it's some of that music is just not going to work. To your point, I know there's been different analyses and and criticisms over the last twenty years or so that uh, have pointed to actually like the same producers and the same beats being used repeatedly, and in how many ways that uh, that modern pop music is it's simpler, um, it's just not as complex. Um, and more repetitive as well. I've I've seen various uh, reports on on those things over the last couple of decades. Sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I hear I, you know, I in the eighties, I was an R and B artist. I had two albums on Capitol, two on Polydor, and you know, it was crossover jazz with with an R and B you know uh, thing. So I you know, so I hear drum beats. <laughs> you know, I hear a drum beat come up. And I'm like, I did that drum beat in nineteen eighty. <laughs> there's nothing new there i can tell you that 
Okay. We did that in 1980. It's nothing special going on there, you know. Uh, and and these these things that just vamp and vamp and vamp and vamp, and it's the same like four bars over and over again. I, it's like I, honestly, I can't listen to it because it just drives me nuts. It, it's just because uh, I I go, you know, the social message, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, honestly, it doesn't register. I appreciate it. It doesn't resonate with me as much as the music because my ears are tuned to music. Mm-hmm. So I focus on the music. As a matter of fact, I just did um, what's been interesting when I when I created three different Motown type concerts. One was Queens of Soul, one was Kings of Soul, and one's called Dancing in the Street, which we're doing in Rochester next week. And then I, I did an 80s concert. And I always loved the music. But I didn't know all the lyrics to all the songs. I mean, my, my we'd be in the car and my wife would be singing and she's singing every lyric. I'm like, how do you do that? She goes, well, I know all the lyrics. Well, I did. So when I started, when I created the, the, the music and the arrangements, and then I had to write the vocal parts out and, and write out the lyrics and type out the lyrics, the lyrics blew my mind. I, I didn't realize how incredible the lyrics for some of these songs really were. Some of it is, is incredible. Like These Dreams by the group Heart. If you ever look at the lyrics to that, they're just incredible. These It's, it's a beautiful, beautiful, poetic story that is te- that people are telling. So, um, you know, the, the lyrics uh, are, are really incredibly important. And, um, but I didn't realize it because I was so focused on the music. So that tends to be my tendency. And if I hear new pop music, I focus on the music and it drives me absolutely crazy because it just repeats the same thing like 60 times, basically, you know? Mm -hmm. So it's not, I don't even consider it music to be honest with you. I think, I think it's a new form of communication that uses music and effects, but also social commentary to talk about the world that we live in from the perspective of the people who write the music. And that's what it is to me. It's more, it's more theater in a sense. It, it's sort of audio theater more than it is music. I mean, that's, that's how I view it. And that's how somebody who works with everything from 15, you know, from the 1500s to now and every config, you know, from Gabrielli and the Canzonas of the, you know, 15th century up through Beethoven and everybody to Duke Ellington and every, you know, when I lump it all in one thing and the, what's happening today is part of that, that is the smallest sort of musical part of musical history because of, again, what I said, it's music is a part of something that is uh, a social commentary and it's, theater and it's more it's it's not just about music even though you can move and dance to it and, and all that it's it's got a, a whole different i think purpose in the world than just listening to music it's it's beyond that it's transcended that in a way it's a it's a commentary on the world and to your point in in both pop and hip-hop and it's spreading into other genres as well sampling as sort of taken over so you are you are seeing whether it's beats from decades ago sort of remixed and twisted and repeated over and over again um i was one example you know one my namesake 
James Brown. Um, one of his tracks, I believe, from the big payback. Um, I believe I I recall reading that it's been used in roughly 500 pop songs. Yeah, yeah, sure. Yeah, well, you know, what, what ended up happening, you know, when, when I was recording, you'd get a two or three album deal and they would sort of work your career through the albums and you hopefully, you know, you would make, uh, you'd have a chance at least to be out there for a couple of years. And then it went down to your one album deal. Then it went down to you got a single, <laughs> you know. And now I I, I think the, the people who control you know, the the uh, financial part of this whole industry, um, basically, they're going to go with the producers who are putting stuff out there that's selling. And they're going to go with that until it's not selling as much and some other guy comes out with another idea and then they're going to go with that person and they're going to do that until that's no, you know, they're just, it's all about the money, basically, is what it is. It's all about the money. And uh, so you're not getting a real diversity in the style of music or the content basically you're you're just hey if this sells let's let's do 10 more of it because it's selling basically that's kind of what's going on uh so and i don't know that i could really speak to it much more than that because you know honestly i'm i'm not in that i don't do that music i just observe it from you know a technical music standpoint and i'm not in any way saying it's valid or it's not valid i'm not judging it either way it just is Sure. And I'm just I'm just sort of, uh, you know, assessing it as for what it is, how it appears to me. But, you know, I'm not, so again, I'm, I'm not saying it's not great music. It's just not music that works for the world that I live in and that I'm able to bring to the concert stage. Yeah, it's an eye of the beholder kind of situation, right? Yeah, sure is. Yeah. Just, uh, I, I know I, I said I'd keep you to an hour. I, I do have, I have a million more questions, but but I'll, yeah. I'll, I'll, I'll keep it short. Right. Um, is there a, a song or, or a popular song or, or, or artists whose music you'd like to use or, or tried to use and it just didn't work? You, something that you wanted to use. Well, I want to... I want to do a whole concert of Stevie Wonder's music, but we can't get the rights to it. And Stevie has to be involved in every single note. And it's, I've been trying to do this for five or six years. It's a very complicated process because um, I think people would just love a whole concert of Stevie Wonder music. Um, uh, but, you know, the the people, everybody owns this. And I mean, it's so it's so complicated. And it, it all comes down to Stevie sitting in a room and, and deciding, you know, what he's going to allow people to do with his music. So th there's nothing that I've wanted to do, say, technically, artistically, that I couldn't figure out how to do or whether it will or will not work. And I'll give you an example. Um, Shana Steele, who's coming here uh, in the Motown this week, we're going to next year, we're going to do a one woman concert. Uh, with her, of, of her band, her music, mixed in with, you know, there's some Ray Charles and Ella Fitzgerald and, and different things and, and Big Mama Thornton and, you know, diff different kinds of music on there. But she's also has some original things and she, you know, sent me things to listen to. And there's a couple of her pieces, which I love. I really love them. Um, but 
the way she has recorded it, it's so exciting. The band is so exciting. The, the sound is exciting. It's so kinetic. You know, there's all this stuff going on. And I can't figure out one thing the orchestra, a symphony orchestra could do on that music. So it's really better if they do it as a band only tune because all we could do is ruin it, basically. Wow. You know? So, so there, are t- there are times like where I am not, I am specifically not going to do something if I don't think it really can work. It has to be able to work. And, and I know after all this time, you know, basically yeah, 45 years now, or maybe 50 years, I know it's going to work with an orchestra and I know what isn't going to work. And I'm not just going to force something to work that I, I think can't, because it's not going to be good for anybody. The players aren't going to enjoy it. The audience is not going to enjoy it. It's just not, you know, so I, I at least, you know, I have the, experience and wisdom to know what will and won't work so is it after practice is it just listening to the music or is it after trying to compose it that you know when it works it's like it's 50 years of doing arrangements seeing what worked what didn't work standing in front of an orchestra hearing how they play live without any you know amplification knowing what the what an instrument can do what it can't do and then also having spent you know 5 to 7000 hours in the recording studio doing pop music and different things and like knowing that this that side of things too and the kind of energy that that generates and you know so it's just knowing all of this information and processing that to say, okay, I just know this is, there's no way this is going to work. Maybe somebody else will do it, but from what I know and all the experience I've gained in the last 50 years, I can tell you there is no possible way I can make this work. Uh, and I, I, I defy someone else to do it, you know, without doing something totally stupid. I mean, can I, could I, if if you're if there's a track that's going on, it's a high energy track. The drums are cooking, the guitars are are playing. You know, and it's also they got kind of the power guitar stuff going on the keyboards, and the singers wailing, and it's taken up all the space, all the sound space is taken up already. Could I have the orchestra play? Yeah, we could be behind it, you know, playing big sound and long notes and fattening things, but it's not going to make any difference, and it's not going to be fun and it's not going to be anything that's interesting so why but the only thing you can do is wreck the song so why do it you know you could do it but why it's just not it doesn't make it you know and on the other hand there have been a few instances where initially i looked at something and i thought this is going to this could work, but it's going to be really difficult to get it just right. And then I, I start to work with it and I realize, okay, this doesn't need, you know, 10 woodwinds. It only needs this one solo and it doesn't need this. It only, you know, so then I'll, I'll pare down the instrumentation to really make it work well. Um, and not ruin it. And and I've done that in whole concerts. I mean, I I, I took, you know, uh, I have an '80s concert, and in there is, you know, there's there's music. There, there's uh, these dreams by heart, and and uh, uh, time after time, you know, Cindy Lauper and Betty Davis eyes, and and I found a way to make the orchestra relevant on all of those pieces. 
and people who have come to hear the concert have said to me, I never imagined I would like this, that it could work, but I think it's better than the original, you know? So it's just the kind of the approach. So there are enough, there were enough elements in those songs to where I could make it work symphonically without ruining it, but just enhance it, you know? So it, like I said, it's one of those things that you just, you know, experience and time and, and a whole career takes you to a point where your instincts kick in and you, you just sort of know what can happen. Is there a composition where your instincts have been wrong? Um, there have been things that didn't work originally that I've ended up rewriting like three times to get it right. Such as? Um, well, I wrote, I wrote a jazz uh, nutcracker suite. Ellington also did one. But there was one movement. I just, I thought it was going to be cool. And then we did it one holiday concert with RPO. And it was like, yeah, it was okay. And then I, I redid part of it. It came back the next year. And, yeah, it was a little better. And then I really thought about it. And I, I thought, I, and I realized I had too much going on in certain sections. So I completely redid the whole thing. And I finally got it. It took me three times in three years, but I finally got it, <laughs> you know. Uh, so, and I think there have been a couple of things over the years that I've brought in with the orchestra. And, you know, they worked, but I didn't, I wasn't thrilled with how it came out. And I just withdrew them and they're, they're in a closet and probably shredded by now. You know, they'll never be out again. So, you know, I would say my failure rate is probably 1%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, I'm not saying everything is God's gift to music, but my, my success rate is pretty high. Only because of all the things I've learned. It's not about whether I'm great or good. You know, it's just that the experience of knowing what worked and how to, to craft things, you, you just can't beat 50 years of experience. <laughs> I don't care who you are. You, know, you, you have to live to get the experience that you need to create great stuff. On that note, any famous last words? Uh, life has exceeded my expectations. I've gotten to work with some of the greatest musicians in the world uh, of a lot of different generations, you know, from Leslie Odom back to Joe Williams, one of the great jazz singers of the 50s, 60s, 70s, and Tony Bennett. I mean, I've gotten to work with such incredible artists. Um, I have gotten to work with some of the best orchestras on planet Earth. I, I've got to meet some incredible people through my work, presidents, you know, all different kinds of people uh, who have just come down to the one level of like, wow, we love the music. You know, I mean, to get to that, they have a conversation with Gerald Ford and they have him say how much he loved the music. You know, I mean, it's like, you know, so I, I've I've had incredible opportunities. Uh, I'm, I've had a, a great career, um, and I'm I'm just very thankful that uh, whatever being in the right place at the right time, luck. What I mean, however it all worked out, uh, I'm one of the most fortunate people on planet Earth, in my opinion. Uh, and I, like I said, life has exceeded my expectations. And I got to talk with you for about an hour and ten minutes, so everything's good, Jeff. Thank you for joining me, and I'd love to have you back. Anytime. Yeah, let's check back in, uh, when I'm 72. Awesome. <laughs> All right, man. Take care. 
Thanks for listening to all of the above. Let me know what you think wherever you're listening and do me a favor, share with a friend. It really does matter. Also, like, share, and subscribe to the show. You can follow my work at jamesbrowntv.substack.com. I'm James Brown, and as always, be well.